In 2013, a group of people who were interested in queer history met at the home of the late Stuart Butler. Stuart, who was 83 at the time, showed them dozens of boxes of papers he had collected and saved throughout his 35-year career as an LGBT plus activist. Stuart then asked the group what was going to happen to his archives when something happened to him. The result was the creation of the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana. The Archives Project chronicles the cultural and historical materials of the LGBT Plus community in Louisiana. The mission of the project is to preserve, protect, promote, and encourage the preservation of these materials and make them available for future generations to access for research and study. Quiet Conversations is proud to have the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana as a part of this podcast. If you'd like to contribute, please visit them at lgbtarchives.org forward slash donate forward slash. That's lgbtarchives.org forward slash donate forward slash. Acknowledging and celebrating our differences is essential in hearing another person's views as it can help you approach conversations with a willingness to learn. Keep in mind that your peers may also have different reasons motivating their viewpoints and actions. My name is Arthur Severio and welcome to Quiet Conversations. It wasn't until December of 1973 that the American Psychiatric Association ruled that homosexuality was not a mental disorder. Stonewall had only happened four years before. Some of us had to hide who we were because we came from religious Southern backgrounds. If we were found out, we were sent to some kind of conversion therapy, or even worse, we had to live with the shame of having demons cast out of us in front of the church. Some parents even went as far as disowning us just because of who we were. Many of us were forced to leave home without ever having the support of a loving mama or daddy. And for them, the French Quarter was the promised land. And even though there were challenges, it was still a safe space for us. Gay bars in the French Quarter have always had what we call a tea dance. Tea dance happens on Sundays from 5 o'clock till 7 o'clock with beer bust and drink specials. When I came out in 1983, the gay boys flowed out of the bars onto the corners of Bourbon and St. Anne Street, dressed in their best summery attire. I asked Clayton Dellery about that Sunday in June of 1973 and what made it special. They were celebrating gay pride in the lounge At that time, gay pride wasn't much more than a bunch of your favorite bar and drink more beer. Yeah, I think like the parades had I asked author Robert Feaster to give us a first-hand account of his interview with Stuart Butler about the night of the upstairs lounge fire. Leading into the night of June, the Sunday night of June 24, 1973, the beer bus was happening. They were there from the 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. famous drink special at the, at the upstairs lounge bar, which is one dollar for unlimited draft beer. Although Stuart and Alfred because they had Alfred's money sprung for vodka. So even though during the during the beer bus, they were drinking just straight vodka. I'm not gonna say it's like, you know, top shelf, but they were they were drinking vodka during the, the drink special. And here's Regina, describing her and Reggie's typical Sunday. 
can we talk about the day that the fire happened? Yeah. The day the fire happened was a good day for us. It was fire. We had a good time. We were going up. We got up and we settled around in the house and we were going to the beer bus at 5 o'clock. So we ate a good lunch and we walked over to the bar and we got there right about 10 minutes to 5 before the beer bus started. Neither one of us was drinking beer, but we, we knew our friends were there, and there was always a crowd there before the beer bus started. Some of them would leave, and uh, a bunch more would come in at 5 o'clock when the beer bus started. And uh, we were sitting at the piano, and the piano player uh, called himself Bill Bailey, but that wasn't his real name. That was just the name he used uh, to perform under. And he was at the Rain Tree. He would perform there. And then he'd get off of work at four. Then he'd go over to the bar and have a drink or two and play the piano. And there were stools all around the piano. So, so what, we were like sing along? Yeah, you could sing along if you wanted to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not, not a lot of people sang along. A lot of people got up and danced and uh, talked. And there were tables in the second room. There was this big, the bar was on the wall. There was the two bathrooms and the window, and that's, then on the other side of the window is where the bar started, and it ran all the way to the other wall. So it all faced into the second room. So you could see what was going on there if you were sitting at the bar. And the jukebox was there by another big door that was there. So there was the fire door there, the iron door, and the jukebox was on the right side of that. And then there were tables all and chairs all along the wall on both sides of the room. So you could put your drink down and sit down or take your jacket off and get up and dance for a while and then you go sit down for a while. So a lot of, uh, from five to seven, the place was always packed up. There was probably 50, 60 people in there. And that was about the occupancy, the legal occupancy at the time. It was probably about 60 people. Unless they opened the back door, which was a theater in the back and they, they had like 156 feet so it could be considered a legitimate theater. So Sunday was the big day to go out. Yeah, Sunday was our big day to go out because we'd go out at 5 it was early. We'd be home by 9, 10 o'clock at the latest. It was from 5 to 7. Usually by 8, we'd be leaving the bar, and we'd go get a bite to eat and go home. And that, no, particular, we're day, we're mm-hmm, sorry. that particular day was a Buddy Rasmussen's lover, Adam's birthday. So when we got there and we found out it was Adam's birthday, we talked about it. And so, well, why don't we take them to dinner with us? We had plans to go to dinner already. <coughs> so uh, we uh, uh, asked Buddy and Adam, why don't y'all come to dinner? We'll take you to dinner for your birthday. And so Buddy said, well, he has to work. He has to work till uh, 8, uh, 8 o'clock. So he said when he got off at 8, we could go to dinner. I said, well, that's what time we usually eat anyway. So I looked at Reggie, and we sat down at the piano. He went and got him a drink. I still had about a third of my rum and coke left, so I wasn't ready for another drink yet. So we sat down, we talked for a few minutes, and I said, Reggie, how much cash do you have on you? He says, uh, he said, I don't know if I have enough for four of us for dinner. So I said, well, uh, we should get the checkbook, and Buddy will cash the check for us. And so... He said, well, I'll go get it. I said, no, you just got your drink. Go ahead and have your drink. I'll go get the checkbook, and I'll get me another drink when I come back. 
It's like I said, I only had like a third of mine left, and most of it was watered down anyway. So I said, I'll run up there and get it, and I'll be right back. And that's what I did. I got up. I walked out, walked up through across the room, through the uh, big iron door that was a fire door in the stairwell. Regina kissed Reggie on the cheek and headed down the stairs. I imagine it was like most nights in June, hot, humid, and smelling like the French Quarter. I imagine she rushed down Iberville Street, heading towards Rampart, past the Walgreens on the corner of Royal, passing Wanda's, Felix's Oyster Bar, and I bet as she slowed down crossing Bourbon Street, some street hustler yelled, Hey lady, I know where you got them shoes at. Iberville Street gets quiet past Bourbon, where tourists start to thin out. On her walk, she would have passed the Playboy Club, Maison Blanche, and D.H. Holmes. And on the corner of Iberville and Burgundy, where the McCrory's department store once was, she made her turn. McCrory's served two generations of customers. The ones who still wore hats to lunch at Galatoire's on Fridays and shop after on Canal Street. And then there were the younger ones who wore wigs they saw on Soul Train and the Mike Douglas show, worn by the Supremes, Jean, Mary, and Cindy. On the one block of Burgundy before turning onto Conti, Regina would have passed the New Orleans Athletic Club. After fetching the checkbook and locking her front door and shutters, she might have looked across the street at the famous whorehouse that Jim Garrison forced to shut down in his attempt to save the French Quarter. According to Christine Wiltz, author of The Last Madam, legend has it that Norma's was where many boys had their rites of passage. Norma Wallace took care of her girls when they needed anything, even after they quit working for her. She paid off the 8th District Police, going as far as having a metal door installed with a mail slot. And when those cops showed up at that metal door, there was a brown paper bag that Norma filled with cash that was slipped through the mail slot. Norma would have paid anything to keep the cops from harassing her, her girls, or the Johns that paid them. According to my friend Lila, who arrived in town on August 9, 1969, the day of the Sharon Tate massacre, that area around the upstairs was real shady. Jean's Hideaway and Wanda's were on the same street as the upstairs. Jean's Hideaway and Wanda's both had reputations as bars that someone could pick up a trick. There were even the occasional Greek sailors who wandered in off the street, fresh from the ships that had just docked on the Mississippi River. And there were even occasions when a wife would come in from the Marriott or the Monteleon looking for a trick to take back to the husband. According to author Bobby Fiesler, on the Sunday afternoon of June 24th, Roger Nunez was working a trick named Donald Landry, promising sex for pay. Roger didn't seem to mind that Donald wore a colostomy bag and was in a wheelchair. Roger and Donald had wandered between Jean's hideaway and Wanda's getting drunk. Everything was going pretty smooth until a younger, more beautiful piece of street meat named Mark Allen Guidry entered into Jean's hideaway. Mark Allen and Donald left the bar to trick at Landry's St. Charles Hotel And when Donald and Mark got back to the bar, Roger made Donald give him $20 for services offered, but not rendered. And after the boys got their money, they headed off to the upstairs lounge, leaving Donald behind in his wheelchair. By this time, Roger was looking pretty rough from the afternoon of drinking, and he smelled of rotten beer. Mark didn't stay long. I'm sure it wasn't his kind of bar. But Roger headed straight to the men's restroom claiming one of the stalls to cruise through what Bobby Fieser calls a peephole. He made lewd comments to people that were there to use the bathroom. Here's Bobby now. 
known around Iberville Street, but not welcome at the upstairs lounge. A guy named Roger Dale Nunez, an internally conflicted gay for pay sex worker, burst into the beer bus, provoked a fight with a regular, and got knocked out and got his jaw broken on the floor. And he was, as he was ejected from the upstairs lounge by the bartender, Buddy Rasmussen, and by uh, the other barkeep, uh, Hugh Cooley, Roger Dale Nunez supposedly screamed the word, I'm going to burn you all out. And then another person, Stephen Duplantis, who was Stuart and Alfred's friend who was at the bar right then, heard him say, I'm going to burn this place to the ground. Stephen Duplantis, who was Stuart's ex-lover, who had met Stuart when he was 19 years old. Stephen Duplantis was from Lake Charles, but he enlisted in the, in the U.S. Air Force, and he was stationed at the Air Force Base in San Antonio. He would drive the eight hours to New Orleans to enjoy the gay bar scene with Stuart and with this newcomer, Alfred, who it was clear, although Stuart and Stephen had previously been lovers, Stuart was in his 40s and Stephen was 19. Theirs wasn't like that tight of a union. It was clear to Stephen, as soon as Stuart and Alfred were together, no, this was permanent. This was the couple of couples. And they all enjoyed each other's company uh, quite a bit. So Stephen, Alfred, and Stuart were at the upstairs lounge that night. Alfred and Stephen both heard what Roger Dale Nunez said. Stuart did not. Stuart was in the midst of conversation with other people when Roger was getting kicked out and causing a scene. So Stephen knew he had to leave to drive eight hours to get back to his base in San Antonio for the morning roll call, and he had to make sure he was there. He turns to Alfred, and he goes, you and Stuart need to leave. That guy is promising to come back and cause more trouble. And Stephen leaves and gets in his car and starts driving. Alfred turns to Stuart, and then Stuart thinks this is apropos nothing. But Alfred had heard what Roger said, and also he was goaded by Stephen to, to leave. He turns to Stuart and goes, I want to go. And Stuart doesn't understand why Alfred wants to leave the upstairs lounge. And, and like, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a fun night. Why do we have to leave it to go to some other seedy bar? All our friends are here. And Alfred persists until Stuart has to listen. So he ends up causing a fight with them having to leave. Alfred and Stuart are arguing as they head out the front door on the second floor of the upstairs lounge. And they head on the staircase landing. They continue their fight, being like having a drop couple's row all the way down the front staircase of the upstairs lounge. It's about 745. PM uh, on June 24th, and then they're arguing all the way down Iberville Street, past Exchange Place Alley, past the Walgreens on the corner of Iberville and Royal, all the way until they get to, they cross Royal and they get to the bar Wanda's, and they stop in for a drink. Was this intentional, or was it just a prank? Here's Clayton Dallery. Yeah, Roger Nunez. One of the conclusions I came to is that when he set the fire, he probably thought more of it in terms of committing a prank. Between the time he was thrown out of the bar and the time the fire started, somebody answering his description was at the Walgreens a block away trying to buy a can of Ronsonol lighter fluid. And an empty can of Ronsonol was, was found at the site of the fire when, when the flames were extinguished. The clerk who was working the tobacco counter said that they had Ronsonol in three sizes. There was like a four and a half ounce can, a seven ounce can, and a 12 ounce can. And she described this nervous, effeminate, she used the term feminish, was looking for the cans. He wanted the four and a half ounce can, and he asked her about it, and she said they were out. So instead he bought the seven ounce can. It, it just always seemed to me that if, if he was intending to cause serious harm, he would not have been looking for the smallest can of lighter fluid. The carpet on the stairs was installed in 1970. The federal government didn't set flammability standards for indoor carpeting until 1971. And when they tested the, the carpet for flammability, under the right conditions, the carpet was extremely flammable. 
I think he was just trying to start a small fire and then maybe ring the buzzer and somebody would open the door and see the fire and they panic. I don't think he had any intention to set the blaze that he did. So it was kind of a perfect storm of a lot of unfortunate things happening in a particular sequence coming together all at once. All right, y'all. Y'all are going to have to help me try to understand what happened. So let's go over some facts. Stephen Duplantis made sure that Stuart and Alfred had left the upstairs lounge before leaving to drive back to San Antonio. Now, geographically, Wanda's was only one block from the upstairs lounge, door to door. If Stuart and Alfred walked that one block to Wanda's at the time they say they did, then they would have had to have passed Walgreens at the same time that Roger was in there buying the lighter fluid. You with me? After the fire started, Roger came into Wanda's, covered in soot, claiming he barely escaped the fire through the back door exit, and that while he was at Wanda's, he could not sit still and kept going in and out of the bar onto the sidewalk, looking in the direction of the fire. Stuart and Alfred were drunk, but don't you think they might have seen him? Oh, yeah, they were arguing, too. Here's Robert Fiesler, author of Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. He remembered the number of steps, something like 145 or something like that, between where Wanda's was and the upstairs lounge bar. It was something like a two-minute walk. He said, and then everything, and he, he threw his hands up, and suddenly there was just like too many details going on. It was the scene of mayhem he witnessed, so there was... So many things screaming for his attention and nothing connected or made sense. People with burns that were just on the sidewalk screaming for help. And as all hell was breaking loose on Iberville Street, Stewart left Alfred sitting at the bar at Wanda's while Regina, with her checkbook, had started her walk back to the upstairs lounge. Up there and get it and I'll be right back. And that's what I did. I got up, I walked down through across the room through that big iron door that was a fire door in the stairwell. And when I got back, I got within a block and they wouldn't let me get any further. Two of them had blocked off the street between Royal and Charters. And I saw a couple of people I knew that were standing up against the building with blankets on them. And one of them was a hairdresser. I can't remember what his name was, a big, tall, blonde-headed guy. And his hair was singed and it looked like his left shoulder was red, red, red. And I wanted to ask him if he saw Reggie, if Reggie got out, but they wouldn't let me go up. I said, well, I got to find out if my lover got out. I said, I'm sorry, but you can't go past this barricade. You can find all this out when they put the fire out. He says, would you want anybody getting hurt from things falling off the building? You can't get up the stairwell. That's where the fire is. How but close were you, I'm, Regina? I was a half a block away. Did you stand there by yourself, or did somebody come and get you? Or No, I, I, got, I was standing there by myself at that time. Within about 15 minutes, there was a whole crowd of people there. They wouldn't let anybody go past the corner there. They said it was dangerous to go down there, and you're getting away with the fire department. And they gave you all kinds of excuses why you couldn't go, but bottom line was nobody was allowed to go down that street until they put the fire out. And then did two or three ambulances did came and let them through. And they were putting people in the ambulances that had them covered all with blankets so you couldn't see who they were. They were burnt for one thing, and for another thing, they were covered up to their chins and blankets. I hung around till they finally let me go through. couldn't walk on that side of the sidewalk, so I crossed over the charters to see if I saw anybody I knew. And I saw Rusty Quentin. Rusty was a little red-headed skinny boy from Texas. And when he first came to town, he stayed with me and Reggie until he got on his feet and got a job. And I, was, he said, I asked if he saw Reggie. He said, I didn't see Reggie. 
He said any time during the fire, a lot of people just passed out from the heat. He said they had to step over some of the people to get to the side door. The people that were by the piano and in that archway there were the first ones to get hit with the flash. And they said it, it was so hot it would seal their esophagus. They couldn't breathe. They'd pass out. Well, everybody that was sitting around the piano, including Brother Rasmussen's lover who died on his birthday, died from heat asphyxiation. He said they didn't feel any pain. It just the heat was so intense, so they just blacked out. That was the only saving grace for me because I know he did stuff. I'm sure there was terror, but no pain. And that was a blessing. That was told to me by the fire department and when he asked he said he was kind of in shock. Everybody just, you know, had their head down. Quiet Conversations is written and researched by me and produced with the best of the information that I have found at the time of this broadcast. The speaker's views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of myself, this podcast, or anyone else. The material information presented here is for entertainment purposes only. The Quiet Conversations podcast name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of me, Arthur Severio, and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, and follow on Apple Podcasts. My name is Arthur Severio, and I thank you for joining us. If they ask you what day it is, Tell them it's your day If they ask you how it's going Tell them it's going your way If they ask you what time it is Tell them it's your time and no matter how dark it gets go on and shine go on and shine go on and shine No Yeah.